Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants week after week through their many vaunted titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me online at Nico Action. that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, on all social media. We're going to take a look at X-Factor and Hellion's most recent outings, but before that, we have an incredible interview with letterer Ariana Marr. You've seen her work on a number of amazing titles that we cover week after week, and myself, Maddie, and Dante could not wait to sit down with her and ask her all of our questions, and we hope Hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. Hey there, guys. It's Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man, and now over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. Hey everyone, this is Dante. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Inferno Magic. You know, when you think about comics, you think, you know, the funny pages and all the pretty pictures, but you wouldn't understand a damn thing happening there if it weren't for the letters. And we have with us today an incredible guest. I'm so excited. We have Ariana Mar. Everybody, please say welcome and say hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, we are so excited to have you here. Excited to be here. Like a little baby background thing on me. I love lettering so much. I think about the power of lettering from the pages of Sandman by, Ver- like, you know, DC Vertigo back in the oh, day, yeah. mm-hmm. where those letters were so exquisite. And it taught me that lettering can be art too. And it's it's mm-hmm. just so special that people really do take the time because lettering is like 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 bass playing. You might not be able to recognize great lettering, but man, does bad lettering stand out. <laughs> and so true. I just I'm so excited to have you here. So first things first, the first thing I need to know, what made you fall in love with comics? When I was a little girl, I would always watch cartoons like Saturday morning cartoons, but especially the afternoon cartoons right after school. And eventually uh, X-Men went into syndication, the original cartoon series. And I would just get so excited to watch it on TV. And it was around that time I got to know all the characters and the storylines. Jubilee was amazing. And she was like my favorite. I loved Gambit and Rogue and all those characters. And then one day my mom's walking through Price Club, which is like an old, the old version of Costco. And it had the red, red Price blue club. Yep. Had the card matching you and me. Exactly. (laughs) I saw this big like saran wrap package of like comics, just Marvel comics, like Silver Surfer, Captain America, Thor. And then at the very top, was Jean Grey holding Jubilee while she's crying and it says like the death of Ileana and I'm like what is going on here so I begged my mom and it was I'm still grateful to this day that she like gave in and to shut me up she got me a stack of comics so (laughs) they were probably discounted so it was probably great but I just sat and read that all day and it gave me a good idea of all the different Marvel comics that were out at that time by the time I actually finally walked into a comic book store sometime later I knew exactly what I wanted I wanted X-Men that was me throughout the whole 90s my mom 
gave me like maybe $5 or so every week. And then I'd get bonus pay for good grades. I was no better at math than those days that my mom would drive me to the comic book store. And in the 10 minutes there, I was counting up how much money I had, which books I was going to buy with that money, and then which how much money I was going to bank for the next week because it's in the middle of the freaking Age of Apocalypse storyline, and I had to make sure I got all the books. That's a steep price tag for a kid, man. That's, that's <laughs> some tough shit. I was so good at math. I forgot it all, but I was so good at that time. <laughs> I actually have talked about those multi-packs on this show. So like it, your story is kind of exactly my story. I remember walking through, in my case, it was Pathmark Supermarket, mm-hmm. which had the multi-pack. I got Daredevil Fall from Grace, mm-hmm. Daredevil the Man Without Fear, The mm-hmm. Wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And like those multi-packs and they came in like, it looked kind of like always like Spider-Man webbing where it had the X-Men X logo and mm-hmm. it was like red or black with white on it. And like, I had so many of those and it's yeah. just, so cool that, to hear you know that sort of matched experience in such different places well we were in dc area and then we got stationed overseas when i was 13 and, uh, when we got stationed in japan like we could get a few off the rack in the like navy commissary but eventually there was they weren't even ordering comics there so i was just like unable to read comics and i just could like get what trades we can order because amazon was just starting up at that time so every once in a while like dad would get a trade or something and i'd just devour it and i had a bunch of old comics that i collected before our move like stacks and stacks so i would just go to my room and reorganize them and reorganize them and reread them <laughs> i ended up making a lot of friends through it because my best friend who's still my best friend to this day alan she came into school one day and she had a uh, collected um uh, generation x oh badass yeah and i was like she is so cool i want to be so her cool. friend how do i talk to her <laughs> And it turns out she she loves the art, but had no patience to like sit and read through the story. And oh. I loved reading the story. So I would just like tell her what the story is. I would have sat next to you guys on the bus just to like overhear. That would have been amazing. We, we were definitely the cool kids <laughs> in our little world. <laughs> Ari, I just want to say, like, everything you were saying resonated so much with my childhood, too. Like, um, mm-hmm. going to the commissary and, like, trying to get what comics you could mm-hmm. when you were on base and yeah. always being disappointed at the limited yeah. options. You would take whatever you could. It was, yeah. it was a treasure when I saw that they started selling um, the Joe Kelly Deadpool. And yes! they started, like, issue 12, and then they just stopped ordering it. And I'm, I was devastated. Oh, that's, like, one of the best Deadpool runs of all time. Oh, right? Oh, man. Ugh. It was, it was hard to recover from that. <laughs> but since I was in Japan, I ended up um, eventually starting to read manga because I was studying Japanese while I was living out there. And I actually ended up getting a degree in uh, Japanese language and culture and moving back to Japan and um, and translating uh, professionally there. But it was while I was back in Japan translating professionally at um, Kawasaki City Hall near Tokyo, I discovered that there is one store, one comic book shop in the Tokyo area that sells only Western comics. And I had to go. And this was around the time that Peter David was reviving X Factor, you know, with 
yeah. Richter and all them and Jamie Maddox. And, and I always love J.D. Maddox's power. So I was like, I, I got to go check this out. And so I started taking the train after work, like all the way to the other side of Tokyo near Asakusa on the other side of Tokyo, because I was on the south side. This is like on the northeast side, just buying as much comics as I could and going home and reading. <laughs> I kind of revived my love of comics because of I mean, I never really fell out of love. I was always reading graphic novels from time to time, but this was like got me back into reading single issues again. It was like your comic songs. Yeah. <laughs> and that was around the time my dad gifted me Adobe Suite. I think it was CS3. And so I started messing around with it because I started getting into lettering. And that was, oof, that was 10 years ago. And that's when it all started for me. That's so cool to hear, Ari. My interest in lettering, like, I, I feel like I've always paid attention to lettering in comics because, I mean, it so obviously doesn't look like a computer-generated font that we were used to seeing, right? Like, it looks mm -hmm. like handwriting. I've always been fascinated by that because I took music theory where we did a lot of hand manuscripting of music notation. And so I always wondered, one, like, who is taking the time to handwrite all these comics? You know, this, and this is before I... I kind of like deep dived into what it's what lettering has turned into you just mentioned that you started working with adobe have you ever done lettering by hand i letter by hand and i design by hand on certain books for certain sound effects I don't do it for dialogue. I know there are other really great letters who are ambitious enough to do a whole book by hand. And one day I do, one of my aspirations is to like sit and learn how to develop a font and develop my own font. But lettering a whole book by hand is a very challenging experience and it may possibly destroy my wrist. So, so it's, it's one of those things where I use it sparingly. When I want to use it, I try my best to keep it accurate to what I'm trying to do. And even then though, it's usually in a digital medium because like otherwise you have to draw it out on paper and then scan it in and then start working from there when you could have just as much of a good effect if you sit down with Photoshop. Like I know Hassan does that a lot. He'll sit down through Photoshop and draw it out by hand what he wants to do because he has these very organic effects and then port that over to you know Illustrator and work through there. For me, I use a lot of uh, Illustrator brushes. They're already vector brushes, so they're easy for me to manipulate if I have a careful hand with them because they're finicky as heck. For example, there is the Gwenham versus Carnage series. It's new for King and Black. And in that one, the artist has this very fluid style. It's got this roughness to it that works really well with the story it's trying to tell because it's um, these it's very messy and scary. And, uh, so when it came down to doing sound effects, I had to do a mix where I didn't I felt like a lot of the uh, pre-made sound effects were too uniform for what the book was trying to do. So I would go back and I would hand draw a lot of them through vector and be like, okay, now, now I'll start manipulating them and see where I can go with this. And some of it I think is effective. Some of it maybe, maybe not, but uh, I, th I think I did okay. And the whole reason for going digital is that it's fast because I have to be doing, you know, two to five books a week. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I lettered my indie comic for a couple of years there, and like hearing you say illustrator, like I kind of twitched a little bit. I cannot <laughs> even imagine how you do this. I 
Queen Embrace stat. the vector. The best. <laughs> yes. Well, first off, I see that you've done extensive work with Image Comics, probably mm-hmm. best known for producing a variety of genre books outside of classic superheroics. So mm-hmm. with that said, do you consider working on the current X titles to be more or less of a challenge to letter in relation to the dynamism of panel-to-panel motion in superbooks compared to more expository and decompressed comics that you might have worked on in the past? I think every book I'm put on to that my initial like introduction into the book, the first issue, or if it's a graphic novel, the first several pages are always the most challenging because I need to get a good feel of what kind of tone the story has and what the art is trying to convey and conform to it. When I was working on series like James Bond and Critical Role, I knew I needed something that was clear and to the point. So I stuck with some of my favorite fonts that I knew were immensely legible and um, a really standard balloon um, shape because it's like, okay, we're not trying to make it too wild here. I worked on Prison Stalker. I had a lot of specific requests from Salong Leong of uh, what she wanted her book to be like and how organic and alien it is meant to be and how it plays with color and sound. So I really had to dig down deep and it took us, it took us a long time before we came into a style that like was exactly what she envisioned for the book. And so like each book has its own personality and I'm used to that. It's like once I get settled into a book and I know what it wants, I'm I'm just there and I, and I do it automatically because I'm going to stay consistent to what I did in the beginning. And that's how no one is thrown from the story. It's because it's been consistent throughout. But then I got introduced into the House of X, Powers of X, Hickman line. And it's something that, and I was really startled because it's the lettering style for X-Men not really done by any other series in Marvel right now. There, There are other series that use mixed case and even same font, but not in the same size or structure. And it's a, it's a specific style that helps keep, it's part of the design. And anything that's part of the design has to keep cohesive. It's, it's kind of like the glue that helps keep everything together. Even if the stories kind of meander away from each other, the style is there. It startled me at first. I gotta admit, I was like, what is this? It's, it's like the whole approach was taken out of my hands and I was given the, flight manual for a whole new plane it's like okay here you go follow the rules exactly or else (laughs) it really threw me off but i can say now i really like the style because i i know what it wants from me and i can just i can just focus on getting the all the other details right It, it takes a part of my design process and and sets it on autopilot so that the rest of me can focus on all the rest of the details and there are a whole lot of other details to focus on because a lot of these are character driven has a lot of specific beats and motions throughout and a lot of dialogue sometimes so it's an interesting challenge i absolutely love the x-men books you really bring up something incredible in that and i have to assume that with this idea of not just house style but like office style on a specific line 
how does accessibility play into that? You know, this idea that at some point it gets like a little tough for people who are either vision impaired to read or uh, people who have stimulus uh, difficulty. Does accessibility play a huge element like for you guys? Or is it just like, look, we do what we can? (laughs) It depends on who's making the choices and what kind of books there are. Because if the letters are making the choices, then we're going to consider accessibility, legibility above all else, along with like what needs that particular style of book is. Like if it's an Avengers book, what kind of style have we been working with before? Do we tweak it for a new series? Where do we go from here? Or if it's just like a a whole new story cut out of cloth, like Gwenham versus Carnage, where it's like, okay, I can do whatever I want. Where am I going to start with? And how am I going to make that work? Some things are out of your hands. Like I can't change the voice of the King in Black because he's in so many books. So he has a kind of slightly illegible style of speaking with bright red. And I know some people with colorblindness will find that very difficult. But that's not something I can change because I did not set that style. I have to work with it because if he suddenly speaks in like, you know, black and white text, you're just like, what the heck happened to him? Right. So it there is limitations that I have to work with. And but it's always a consideration in my mind. How legible is this text? The Hickman style is smaller than I anticipated. It's it's a smaller font point. It allows for a lot more storytelling to be included into panels. And it's more versatile by being so small, but it can have an effect on legibility. And that's one of those things it's like, okay, I'm I'm just going to have to accept this and move on. And then there are other books like the young adult books. I've worked on young adult books for the DC Zoom line. And well, that's their kids line. And then also their more young adult line, the DC Inc. I worked on several of those titles. We've got a new book through Marvel called Miles and Morales Shockwave. And those books are geared towards kids and young adults. They're meant to not only just be an introduction to characters and comics to kids, It's a way to engage young readers because young readers love comics. I mean, I know I would. And since it's going to be in the Scholastic distribution, like you've been to Scholastic book fairs, right? I mean, I I went to a public elementary school. Yeah, I lived at those. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's like being a kid at a candy store, except the candy store you can eat with your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) And so like they're mammoth. Scholastic is mammoth. And of course, they're thinking about like, what do kids need? How do we provide for them? And how do we make it accessible to them? So those books, I would say that's you start with the idea of accessibility and go from there. A lot of other comics, it starts from a point of creativity. And i that's how I was introduced into working in comics is like, always oh, just think of the creative aspect and like just what looks cool. But I was kind of startled. It was one of the first graphic novels I put together. It was Firebug with uh, Johnny Christmas and Tamara Bonvillain. It was a great series, but there were these like ancient gods I was trying to portray And one was kind of like this kind of watery salamander god. So I used white with a blue fill to uh, in the balloons. Like it was like these blue balloons and then this white text popping on top of it. 
And I thought that would work really well for this kind of watery creature. But then Johnny comes back to me and he says, hey, can you change this to to just black and white? Um, Something that's more like easier to read. And it's like, oh, I have to change all of this dialogue style throughout the whole book. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. And I was like, what happened? He's like, well, I, since we finished the book and we're getting it ready for print, I showed it to my sister, except she's colorblind in certain ways and she could not read these scenes. Oh man, that's crazy. And I was like, oh wow. And that's when I started thinking about accessibility. So there's a lot of books where if I have a freedom to, like there's not a previous design set or not an overall design set, I'm going to tend away from using too, relying too much on color because uh, I want to make sure that like, if you have a color blindness in certain spectrums, it's not going to hinder your reading. You know, I just wanted to chime in for a moment and say that, that my, my partner is, is colorblind partially. And that's part of her aversion to reading comics in like a, in like a visual medium. She enjoys like the MCU stuff and, you know, of the like. It's tremendous though that that is a consideration that goes into the, the creation of, you know, certain style of lettering and, and the consistent use of color. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, it's definitely a consideration. There's also a debate about among letterers, particularly more in the indie sphere of like the usage and flexibility of a mixed case as opposed to all case. So when it's all caps, right, mm. it's easy to read and pick up um, and just go with. It's also traditional to previous versions when it was hand-drawn because you can easily write in all caps. And it gives a specific feel like a lot of superhero books tend to be all caps. And and that works great. However, for kids' books, you tend to want to, especially like scholastic books and stuff, you, you tend to want to use mixed case because that allows much more variation of line and is much more engaging for dyslexic readers. I mean, any comic font has these variation of lines that certain types can definitely be legible to a, a dyslexic reader. But um, mixed case in particular allows that variation of line. It's not like Comic Sans is the be all and end all of font, because it definitely is not. Not to me. <laughs> and, you know, we actually had a similar problem when we weren't sure what to do with our book. I was pushing for mixed case. I was like, yeah, give it that 90s feel. I want to imagine being in the Jay and Silent Bob rack. You know what I mean? Like, because it does have, you're so right. Mixed case has that indie feel. Yeah. So the, the, I think both work pretty great. The all caps is is a really clear, straightforward for most readers. And it's easy for me to spot and read. I did that throughout the whole James Bond series. A lot of the old Dynamite, when I used to work on Dynamite books, I, I used all caps for them because they were nice and clear. But using the mixed case for mostly like kids books and stuff, it's great. But it's also finicky since there's more variation of baseline the lead which is the space between lines when you stack them in a balloon you know you'll have the first line second line third line and the lead is the space in between those lines when you have uh, the font all caps you can have a pretty narrow lead and it's still legible because all caps go only up to that point and only go down to a certain point and the, that, that space in between is nice and even. 
But when it's mixed case, you could have a G go straight down past that point because it's a lowercase G and it just goes down in hooks or it's a J or a capital T just goes way too high and they can overlap. So you, you have to have that space between lines larger, which means you have to have the text take up more space on the page, which means you're covering more artwork. So that's the opposite end of the uh, spectrum of like of whether to use one or the other. Absolutely. I, and I love hearing you talk about this. The amount of work and thought that goes into lettering, the spacing, the way it looks, like it's an incredible feat. And I, I hope more people will come to understand and appreciate the work that you're doing because it is amazing. And to get what we get as a result, mm-hmm. the, as part of the storytelling, like, thank you for that. Like, it's just fantastic. I, I really enjoy the work. It's hard to find to explain what to appreciate about lettering to people because they don't know what to look for. Well, other letterers inherently know what to look for in good lettering and get very excited when we see each other's work and they're like, holy heck, look at what you just did. That's amazing. And it's usually not even just like a sound effect or something. It's just like the placement of a balloon was so brilliant because it it's placed in a way from the previous action displayed in the art to before the really next startling action set in the art. And it's like just a perfect spot for the reader to get those words before the big surprise kind of thing. I think Nico said it best earlier, actually. Like you, you, you may not notice something that's good, but you definitely notice when it's bad. And I think that's probably what most people would notice is like if they didn't like the placement or if something was mm-hmm. illegible to them. That's the thing I think people would unfortunately focus on. So noticing the good is probably probably a lot harder for people when it comes to lettering. Whenever I finish a page, I always sit back and take a good look at the lettering and see where the path is. Like I know where my eyes instinctively go to whenever I see a panel and I start placing accordingly, but that's just experience informing me. I always have to take a step back and be like, okay, if I'm a reader, is my are my eyes going to go to the wrong place at the wrong time? And it, it's it's constantly refining, refining, refining until it's second second nature to do so. Uh, you, you're, you're still prone to mistakes, but just not as many. Lettering must be an exhaustive process during which I'm sure you become intimately familiar with the writing and the art of the book that you're working on. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen so many names and so many pieces of work come across your desk, but if you had any in mind, do you have a favorite writer or artist or even a favorite pairing that you worked with that just sort of was like copacetic with your style of lettering? Oh gosh, I have I have quite a few. I I almost feel like I'm a bad person if I don't include everyone, but that is a very, very long list. Like for current books, I'll I'll name a few. Um, With uh, Teeny's scripts, she has these very dense scripts because there's just so much character work going into it. It's like that kind of Claremont style of like character work. And it can be, and I always know when I get a Teeny book, it's going to be extra effort to make sure I fit out the dialogue and get those beats down right. But I always, always know that Martin, when in Marcus Toe is the one like drawing Excalibur, he's going to know that too. And he's going to like predict where I'm going to go and have really good idea of making the spaces where it counts. So I really love that. The sword team, my gosh, it's probably one of the smoothest teams to work with because like Al's scripts go straight to the heart of what he's trying to he, like. He, there's so, so few edits because his scripts are just like, Christine, he, he knows what he wants and he gets it done. And then I get the script, right? 
And then with the art and the colors, everything just comes to life with that book. And it's exciting. Whenever I, I get new pages for a new sword script, I'm just so excited. It's just like, oh man, where are we going next? But that's for recent books. Um, for, for books I've done throughout the years, the first time, like I worked with a team and it really just like, it really got me feeling like a part of something big in the indie sphere. Because uh, before I got into doing freelancing, I was five years um, working on comics for Little Foolery and just having fun working with my friend on her comic um, Sphere Theory and a lot of her projects and stuff like that. So I knew what it was like to like do teamwork one-on-one, but to work with like a whole team, the writer, the artist, the, the colorist, and hitting those deadlines was Ringside. It's a wrestling comic from Image. It had some ups and downs to get everything in on time. It was not the easiest book to get out in print but the colorist had my back every every time. Like he was just Simon was the best, and uh, that's how I became such a big fangirl of colorists since then. And then they, I worked on Flavor with um, with Hunter, uh, also known as Bookjin Clark. He's a professor, I believe now, and Tamara Baumdelin and uh, Joe Keenedge, who was also from um, uh, Ringside. And that book was just, it looked like an animated cartoon because Tamara made a watercolor kind of feel to the background and a kind of cell-drawn texture for the foreground. Coupled with Hunter's art, it was just, I, I felt everything click with that team. Like everything just fell into place and it's like, this is magical. And we only got like six issues. So that... I'm still not over that. It still broke my heart. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. And then, uh, let's see, favorite script is, I'm going to say it's tied. Like, it's, I really enjoy the scripts from Greg Pak. Oh, he, Greg. Oh, he's the best. When he was doing James Bond and writing the most amazing odd job story I've ever read, he had rhythm. I knew what beats to hit. I knew where to go with it. And it was under the helm of a really, really good editor who just anticipated things ahead of time and gave me the correct directions of where to go. And then, but my absolute favorite scripts, the scripts that I get, and I know the edits will be minimal. The scripts are so to the point. I know exactly where everything goes. It just locks in place is uh, Jody Hauser. Ooh, cool. that's awesome. Like everything locks in place with Jody Hauser. She, when she writes Critical Role, I will get the scripts early and I will, and everything will just fit. And it's just like, how does she freaking do that? But like, I'll have those favorites for scripts. I think the one, the one team that's like closest to my heart was when I worked on another James Bond series, but it was with Vita and Danny and Rosh, several like different really cool artists, including Eric and all these really great people. We, we had a short series, but it was a fun one because so much heart was put into it. So much thought was put on how we were going to tell a James Bond story. And well, that's Vita. I mean, that's just straight up Vita. You know what I mean? Like so, they are. That, for the day uh, I get to work with Vita again. That's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. When we knew we were covering you, I the first thing I wrote down was, please talk about Sword. I won't take full credit for it because 
when I received the script, Al actually indicated, it's like, this is what I see in my head. This is what, where I want things to go. Can you like do, do it like this? We went through a few iterations until we hit on it, but the contribution I gave was making sure I gave it a distinct font. And then we started playing around with that to make sure it was like clear that it gave it rhythm, that it would get large in some places and not so large in others. Because it was pulsing, I guess you could say, with their travels. And then um, the other contribution I gave was color. I wanted it to complement what Marte was doing. Because as soon as I saw his color pages, I was like, I've got to, I, I want to follow the music he's setting. He's putting all these rainbow colors through and it has so much feeding into like the rainbow theme is throughout sword. So I had to follow it through by making sure that those those letters were outlined by color when they go through the gates. And then once they get out into space, it's really distinctive where it's going. So that was that was really fun. So that was a very collaborative that was yeah, usually you're just doing everything through like our editors and we work with our editors and they communicate for, I mean, they communicated for, for us for this too, but this was definitely one where there was a lot of interaction on and a lot of thought put into. So I won't take full credit for that one. I will say it was really special to be a part of that. We have a little like secret handshake when it comes to rainbows. Right before I did Sword, one of the recent books I also lettered was Avengers Aftermath for Empire. Okay. Our contributors Rod and Juan actually did a did a special like 45 minute thing on the <laughs> issue. We had such a great time covering it. Oh, it was a pleasure to edit too. It was a really awesome to work issue to work on cuz I love Young Avengers and I've been a huge fan of reading the series and stuff. Whenever even little bits they give of the characters onto a comic, I'm excited to read it. And getting to do Aftermath was like getting assigned to that book was like I was on cloud nine. It was also my first time lettering with the sword team, especially lettering over Marte's colors. When I got the colors, I was refining the sound effects. And when they do the glass breaking scene at the wedding, I was asking my boyfriend, is like, is it going to be corny if I make it a rainbow? <laughs> I went ahead and made it a rainbow and Marte liked it. So it's kind of like our thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, queers like rainbows. It's what we do. We can't so, help it. You can't my help mom, it. They're my pretty. Mom is, um, my mom is bi and she would always take me to Pride and stuff back when we were living in the States because um, we were living in D.C. area. So she would like take me to DuPont Circle and we go to Pride and everything. So it was like rainbows, rainbows everywhere. And it's like, it's just, it's a comfort color. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, thinking about the fact that you were an Empire, the Fallout special, you know, the Kotati had such a unique way of speaking with the, the coloration and the font design. And I feel like the same was true of Null. And I even think back to like, you know, I'm going back like 20 years, but I think back to like New X-Men by Grant Morrison, where the indication that somebody is either possessed by Sublime or by the Dark mm -hmm. Phoenix is expressed through the font explicitly. How, yeah. how does it feel when the font tells the story? Is it like something they put really clearly in the script or is it a, like an evolution of process? For DC and Marvel, they'll indicate it in the script and I'll go, I'll go by the beat of their drum. 
I, it's really great that I work with an amazing lettering team where if I need the resources, I can reach out and the guys will be quick to like help me find what I need because they know that if they need something and I have that, I can provide that for them too. So when it's like, okay, how does Null speak? And Clayton will know. So he'll, he'll you know, throw us a bonus, like Here, here's how he speaks. <laughs> and so we help each other out. But when you're on an indie book, it is a very careful and deliberate choice. How do I want to change this up? And that's when it gets a little bit exciting for me because I want to come up with ways to to change things up, but I'm limited because I don't want to utilize color too often. Uh, and I want to work more with shape. And so it's a lot of experimenting and, and figuring out, okay, what kind of fonts would you know, look differently and what kind of um, shapes would feel different. I take a lot of inspiration from everyone knows what when everyone thinks lettering, they're going to think Sandman by Todd Klein. They're going to think Todd Klein's lettering throughout those books, how he did every aspect of the dreaming and all of the characters in these unique voices. That's not something that letterers do too often because it can often be in the wrong kind of story, it can often be abused to have too many different voice styles. It becomes a cacophony. But when it's something that like what Todd Klein did and how Gaiman like, um, like used that to his advantage in his storytelling, it was unique. And it's a lot to learn from when it comes to like, it's like, I'm not going to try to eke his style, but it is going to try to show me like, how much do I measure out and um, what I'm going to do that's unique to this particular character's voice. And how am I going to approach it? Are they someone who sounds kind of croaky? Are they someone who sounds kind of like melodious or are they, are they, are they sound like they're singing all the time or they sound like they've just eaten a bottle of broken glass or something like that. And um, (laughs) it it can be, it can be really, really fun to stretch out those ideas. Indie comics in particular is like a really vast playing ground for a letter to really stretch out their wings and sometimes fail and sometimes succeed. I know the very first book I was on, I got completely eviscerated <laughs> for a couple of the ideas I put in there because I thought they were clever at the time. But man, one reviewer in IGN never, never missed an issue of saying my lettering was the worst ever. <laughs> you said Todd Klein. And like my first thought when you said Todd Klein is like how expressively he was able to move in and out of so many styles, like mm-hmm. under Hempel. Yeah. Yeah. Very- under Didn't uh, Russell do his own letters a lot? He's got Russell does his own letters. He continues to go in his adaptions nowadays. I believe he hand letters, much like Terry Moore does. Hand letters and manga letters, the ones who draw over the lettering in manga and redo all the sound effects into English and stuff. Those two types of letters, I admire and also fear their great ability. Like to see Terry Moore hand letter his entire books is like kind of like how even or of course the legendary Stan Sakai like he wins those awards for damn good reason he is just I, I it's just amazing to see and then manga letters they have to pop out full books like within a week and they have to do the most challenging cleanups before they even place their sound effects I'm efficient even if I'm not like the fastest litter in the west I will hit 
really good deadlines. I'll, I'll get those books in on time. I'll keep that engine running and I'll make sure those books are nice and clear that you, as a reader, you're going to pick it up and enjoy it. And that's not going to win me any accolades or anything like that, but that's fine. The best compliment I can get is when the editor is like, oh, that was cool. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> but when you see like the big guys doing it, it's like, oh, wow. Like how even? Uh, over my desk in my studio, the one I share with Zach, I have two Yoshi Yoshitani prints up because I love her work. But I also have two Todd Klein prints up of his compendium of knowledge of lettering or his wow. early lettering portfolio that he composed all in one page. Like you can buy that from his website. So I bought those and I, I put up those prints and it's just, it's inspiring to me. It's like, I think about how he put clarity onto the page when there was so much story to tell and the reader never stopped and went, okay, where do I go next? And the density of his letter work is so breathtaking. The, the effortlessness he used to express the different ideas of perspective. Like you could tell what kind of dream or nightmare it was by the lettering. Every yeah. time it was yeah. such an expressive part of the art in a way that I feel like only at that point in comics, you know, like, you know, Karen Berger was so open to so much that so many people weren't able to see yet. And this idea of letting the letterer go free was something that really set the Vertigo office apart from, you yeah. know, standard DC. Yeah, with, um, you know, the major DC and Marvel books, you are going to have certain expectations on how characters are going to sound, how you're going to approach certain characters. And um, the lettering has to follow through on that. But with Vertigo, it was, I mean, I've never worked on a Vertigo book. I always wished I could have, but I was, I got into the game too late. But the, they have an indie quality to them in respect that it, you never know what you're going to get when you open up an issue. And I absolutely love that. It, it really gave a lot of freedom to see where the letter is going to go and where they're going to stretch themselves to. Like with uh, Kieran Gillen's Journey into Mystery, that was another one where mm. the, the power of lettering really played a meta value in the storytelling narrative or uh, at his Young Avengers as well, which, you know, every page was mm -hmm. about the deconstruction of the idea of metafiction as a container for a story like this. He played with the lettering like crazy. The upcoming uh, story that's going to come out in like, what, a month from now is uh, Wiccan and Hulkling or the King and Black event. Where do they go on their honeymoon kind of story, right? I got attached to the book, mostly because I kind of begged for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was allowed to approach the style of lettering in my own way. And I asked, like, what are you guys looking into thinking about? And they gave me some ideas. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to. So I, I reach out to Clayton, who's the best. He's literally the best. And I asked him, it's like, okay, when you lettered Young Avengers, what style did you work with? And he explained the style to me and, and all that. And I was like, oh. I'm going to try and do that. So Young Avengers and um, this upcoming Wiccan and Hulkling book will have that in common with each other is that they'll have a, a similar style of lettering. I need a second. I have to sit on the floor and cry. And I'm going to get <laughs> back to you when I've recomposed myself. I, I came into <laughs> comics with Alan Heinberg's Young Avengers. That was like one of the first things I bought with my money. 
You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Not not mommy mm-hmm. and daddy and the bank of good parent, but like, you know, yeah. like Nico have job, get job at comic shop, buy comic, uh, <laughs> Young Avengers. And like, you know, this idea of bringing my husband into comics with Young Avengers and now he's a colorist and like this, mm-hmm. this excitement of what comics could be and this idea that I watched Wiccan and Hulkling come into the fruition that they are and what they've come to represent to the gay community, the queer community at large, and even not the queer community, but anyone who's ever felt different. And to hear that that kind of love is put into the work on every level, it just warms the cockles of my queer little heart. It's basically us saying you're not alone. We're excited for them too. They mean so much to so many of us. Also, when I got assigned Excalibur, they knew how much it meant to me. Because like, yeah, I grew up in the 90s of Rogue Gambit and Jubilee Kid. They were like absolute favorites throughout. So getting to letter Excalibur is a dream come true. And I'm grateful to Corey Petit every day for him being like, hey, I know you're getting used to everything. You want Simon? And you're like, oh my God, yes, please. My favorite character of all time and continues to be my favorite is Richter. Hell yes. Fuck yeah. yeah. Queer Latinos for the for the win. For the win forever. <laughs> it's just what it is. It's the whole show. Everybody here is a queer Latino or Blake. And that's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so excited like Richter is my guy I just I get to letter him I'm always so happy I get to do his sound effects ah Ari you're making us so happy too like it's so exciting (laughs) to hear the passion uh coming from you uh with all these characters that we love as well so Mm -hmm. yeah that's great it's just it's yeah it, it it meant a lot to me to get to work on these books I hope I get to continue working on these books for a long time. It's been a dream come true. When I was invited to join virtual calligraphy, it was huge for me. And I had to make a huge decision. And I said, okay, Chris, I'm going to I'm gonna talk to you next week. I'm going to have to think over it over the weekend, talk to my family. When in truth, I already knew my answer. I already knew what I was going to do. I I was just pretty much telling everyone what my plan was. I I did scare the shit out of my boyfriend because I met up with him on a date at the comic book store because we were going to go play Commander, you know, Magic the Gathering. Was, I said, okay, there's this major life-changing event that I'm about to go through and I need to talk to you about it. And he looked like he was going to have a freaking heart attack. And that's when I realized it sounded like I was pregnant. And I was <laughs> Uh, he still he still is not happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just shouted from the other room, no, I'm not. <laughs> it's so incredible because it feels like for an for a year, you know, just for this incredible year of your journey, you've had such a varied experience at Marvel, let alone the indie books before that. And it's just been so fantastic to hear you tell how you get to be a storyteller by kind of repeating the story and i mean you know when we think about the classic the classic trope of the storyteller the storyteller is a story you know repeater as well as come upper with her -er. and (laughs) it sounds to me like from what we've talked about this last hour you've done a lot of both in your year at marvel and it's been so incredible that you've taken the time to share this with us oh i've got a question oh hit us what do you guys think of the latest issue of sword I set the teams uh, for who covers what, and I put myself on it. I thought it was really good. <laughs> there were some rainbows in this issue, and I'm like, damn it, Marte. Do it again. 
Why? My heart. Oh, I loved it. It's so good. The rainbows do not go unnoticed. Like, let me just tell you, every time I see a rainbow in any of the books, I'm all about it. So I'm still a novice at it, but I'm growing to enjoy doing data pages. Not every time, but on occasion. I did the uh, data pages in the first issue of Sword, you know, the big org chart and stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I did it for the second issue, not for the third issue, except for the page that talks about Manifold. And I got to place for that. And I was like, this is this is nifty. This is super nifty. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> this, is, this is a really cool idea <laughs> that the writer had on how to um, incorporate data pages in a whole new way. So, yeah, that made my day. Also, it took like it took quite a few hours to get that org chart in the first issue right. I I worked so hard on that. Such a good series. I'm so excited for all these characters. Ari, I'm really glad that you brought up the data pages, actually, because I have really been enjoying the evolution of the, the data pages. Getting to see the data pages or getting instructions on how how to start working on certain data pages. It's like, oh, this is fascinating. Because the data pages, love them or hate them, they... They are part of the cohesiveness of House of X and mm-hmm. Powers of X mm-hmm. and the Reign of X. Like it, it really is part of the glue that keeps everything together. It would not mean nearly as much if you didn't have writers like Leo Williams and, and Teeny Howard having those little like character asides that kind of overlap both X Factor and Excalibur and stuff like that. That homogenization like, is beautiful. Yeah, that kind of homogenization is just, it's gorgeous. And I get so excited. This The whole recent epic of Mr. Because I also do Hellions too. So the whole epic of Mr. Sinister's cape. Oh my God, that was our favorite thing. That was our favorite thing. I'm the biggest Braddock fan. It makes no sense. I don't even care. I love them all way too much. I just want to give each one of them a ring pop. And then Jamie running around in that goddamned cape looking so magnificent. That was... That was my Nessendorma. That was like the best thing to happen to me since I discovered yellow rice. I can't even tell you. Like, that, that, that was very carefully thought out. They know what they're doing. <laughs> and it's just like, that damn cape. My gosh. Where's it going next? This next segment sees myself, Jonah, and Nathan talking about X-Factor. Now, X-Factor gets a lot of love on this show, whether it's Leah's writing or David and the art team's beautiful work. And this issue was no exception. The love fest translates from our world into the book itself as we see some incredible relationships advance in the pages of this issue. And it left us with a pretty shocking cliffhanger. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everybody. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Nathan. You can find me online on twitter and instagram at dazzler aoa and i'm jonah and you can follow me over on twitter and instagram at peak jonah and we hope you survive this experience just like akihiro did when he was trapped in the far corners of some part of the world impaled on a spike and it only took north star seven minutes to find him not including all the days that he was there hey you know i really love that point right this issue was all about people getting impaled on spikes whether it was Dokken or Tommy and Prodigy. I, this <laughs> issue was all about that or kind of... Kyle uh... and, and Jean Paul. 
this was just like you know like this was like the fuck bucket issue this was just like everybody take your dick out and just like wag it right like aurora's got her dick out and she's just wagging it at Dawkins, and Dawkins like the hungriest <laughs> dog at a bone so okay i'm getting way ahead of myself so of course we're here to talk about x factor number seven by the breathtakingly brilliant team of leah williams and david baldon now we had a chance to talk to both david <clears throat> we had a chance to talk to dave i meant both of us did and then i realized neither of you were on that <laughs> interview <laughs> Uh, <laughs> there's three of us so <laughs> i missed that on a lot of levels okay so now we were lucky enough to interview david baldon and he was so tight-lipped about stuff that was coming and it's amazing because the number of things in this issue that we like alluded to or hinted at that we were looking forward to that he didn't let slip at all is amazing. The events of X-Factor number seven see the team coming together to try and continue investigating what's going on with Siren. It also sees an additional character of Speed making his, I guess, sort of like Hoxpox era debut as a member of the X-World, for lack of a better way to put it. Now, hopefully everybody listening to this has seen at least some of WandaVision. This is a really big time for that character. So it's really nice to see that synergistic sort of nod back in the comics. Of course, it's not just as simple as taking care of everybody and romances and coupling up. There's also the reveal that Siren has been replaced by the Morrigan and put a big ol' whammy on Polaris. Grateful that that took only an issue to resolve, but the end of this issue left us with such an intense fucking cliffhanger that as a team, we've decided not to take a look at the cliffhanger so much as we're going to investigate the rest of the issue around it. Now, first things first, there were a lot of pairs in this issue, and so much of the romance in this issue was very either new or newly confirmed or possibly just new to the readership. Myself, I've always kind of seen Prodigy and Tommy that way. I mean, everybody knows that I've been saying on this show since like the first episode two years ago, Prodigy is one of my favorite X-Men of all time. I think he is not just incredibly cleverly created, but he's gorgeous. And we don't have enough strong, smart black men in the X-Men who aren't utilized for their strength instead of their intelligence. Like we don't have enough, you know, Bishop Bishop's great, and I love how smart Bishop is, but Bishop is often used as the muscle. David is used as the brains, and that's an important role to see a young black man in. To step that forward and make that young black man queer is so significant. And this character became queer on the pages of Young Avengers in a time where the writer himself, Kieran Gillen, was struggling with his coming out as bisexual. He was married to a woman, is married to a woman, still very married, married, married. And he put a lot of honesty into that character. And I think that's why people are able to accept Prodigy's queerness. Now, Tommy's queerness, on the other hand, I just can't even imagine how half of Twitter is reacting to this. Because there is a something we discussed in the green room before this all started. One in ten men is gay, but three in ten sets of twins have two queer siblings. So it's not quite a 50% chance that two siblings will both be queer. It's like a bit below that. But, you know, I think this might be the first queer sibling pair we have in Marvel, at least in the X-Men that I can think of. Now, I just went on and on forever about how mind-blown I am as a fan of these two characters for, you know, 15, 20 years, seeing them transform. How do you guys feel? You know, Nathan, I know you have experience with both of these characters, but Jonah, you're coming in just with your six issues of Prodigy and your cursory knowledge of speed 
Well, I have a little bit more knowledge of David because I read a little bit of the America Miss America solo series where they both go to college when he was depowered and they're both kind of just like queer icons together. But You're right. I, that is definitely uh, something that spins out of the events of Kieran Gillen's Young Avengers that I didn't give credit to. You're absolutely right. So there's, I know a little bit more about Prodigy, and I think he's a really cool character, and I love when characters get to express their queerness in the best way that's for them, and I love that we have someone that is bisexual because bisexuality is still, even in this day and age, not represented well, or people think that if you're with someone of the same gender, that means that you're not bisexual and that you're gay, or that if you're someone with the opposite gender, that means you're straight and you're not bisexual, and none of that is true you're bisexual no matter what gender person you end up being with your identity is not invalid in any way tommy on the other hand is someone i don't know anything about especially like compared to his brother i know a lot more about his brother and that's not even saying much because i know next to nothing about billy so this is a very clean slate for me for someone who knows nothing about speed and only recently learned his mutant name because of wandavision <laughs> I it's kind of interesting that they've had a very close relationship but it's never put a sexual definition on it until this issue and I'm okay with that especially if it's a lot of coding because I know a lot of times you can't always outright say a character is queer or whatever they choose to identify as so having Tommy seem very open and happy and kind of nonchalant about this entire situation and everybody treating it very, you know, normalized is something I really appreciate of what they're trying to do for it. I think probably my favorite moment was uh, Tommy completely like gushing Gaga over North Star and then going, but babe, my masculinity, I'm feeling emasculated, kiss it better. <laughs> and it's like the subbiest sub who's like so happy to be a sub it's like everything and more i was really happy with that and i you can have you can have twins you can have siblings who are both queer i've read way too many stories of queer siblings and honestly it's way more funny hijinks in my eyes than when they're both straight (laughs) um i I would just say for me this is like it's an amazing confirmation we've seen tommy in prodigy kiss before right but this is like an amazing like confirmation that that they're like still figuring out what they are i mean they're young right so they don't need to jump into like my like fiance like tommy's brother did with Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's adorable but it's also like oh i love that they're they're figuring it out like they're having a relationship and like you said jonah oh my god when he's like gushing over north star i was kind of like god damn it leah you're gonna make me not hate john paul just a little bit less every issue i think that's her goal in life is to make me hate john paul a little bit less every issue <laughs> Uh, to, to, to quickly jump on that, I am kind of the same mindset. I never liked Northstar. I really only known him from his first iterations. And, oh boy, he is not written well. But I want to give a big testament to Leah for writing a character who's abrasive. And the best way I can describe it is Northstar to me is unlikable, but I still root for him. And if you yeah. can manage that, I think that's a real testament to your writing skill. Yeah, no, I agree. That's exactly where I am with him. I'm like, gosh, they hate him i was like you know it's like that love hate thing right he was the first gay superhero right so we're all like yay he's gay but then we're like uh why is he such a jerk but like he's kind of like a not lovable jerk like you're saying but like you can start to root for him now 
And I think that's even part of what this story is trying to, to do with a lot of the redefinition of these characters. It's not that I think that Rachel prior to X Factor had anything wrong with her. It's that Rachel prior to X Factor was a victim of her pain and a victim of the sort of machinations that had been um, incurred against her. Just to make a point, I would say 95% of Rachel's appearances have been written by men. So, you know, we're not really getting that perspective on this woman who has been through trauma. So she's a woman in a unique situation in the first place, having been through the sort of war-torn PTSD kind of trauma. So I feel like this book is all about creating believable next phases for these characters, right? And I totally buy Tommy as bi. Like, I go there with it. I mean, as a pansexual man who finds it just too hard to explain to people, yes, I am married to a man, but I am also physically attracted to women. Like, it's just too hard. People don't want to hear it. So, like, getting this little bit in this comic book may make it easier for me someday to explain that to somebody. Now, as much as we could spend all day talking about the incredible power of the Tommy-Prodigy relationship... The Tommy Prodigy relationship was not the only sexual relationship that took on a powerful new level in this issue. Now, okay, without getting too in-depth with anything, you know, we're all products of our experiences, right? And there is something about Dokken where he very much fits a sort of um, dominant, submissive kind of sexual play element. He's very clearly designed with that in mind, physically, his personality, etc., right? So we have this character, Dokken, who was literally shown to be like a sadistic dom. Like, he's the kind of dom that other doms would kick out of the community right (laughs) we see him being this sort of nasty psychotic piece of shit for years and you know as much as we say that x factor did a lot to soften him we need to take a humongous step back and say that tom taylor did extraordinary work softening him in the pages of all new wolverine so he does deserve a bit of the credit there especially forging the relationship with gabby which is so central to his softening so okay i bring this all up because Dokken literally says make me beg for it and i'm like i'm like i'm like aren't you the dom what i guess he's clearly a switch i guess so but we've never seen that from him before we've never seen him take a secondary role except to his sister except to say fang he never takes secondary roles to sexual partners he takes submissive roles to familial relationships and i wonder If that idea of familial relationship allowing him to express his submission is an indication of his comfort zone in that psychological experience. From there, that makes me wonder if Aurora feels like home to him. Does he see in Aurora an attainable, sexualizable version of his sister? Not that he ever wishes to sexualize his sister, but that is someone he feels comfortable with? You know, I I recognize very frequently that my sister and my husband are very similar people. My sister was my biggest influence and best friend growing up. So when I was looking for a partner, I looked for somebody with the personality type that made me feel safe growing up. You know what I mean? Like that, whether you did it consciously or not. I wonder... If Dawkins' connection with Aurora belies that sort of familial strengthening that enhances the narrative so much for me, because I don't accept them a year ago. If you told me a year ago Dawkins was going to start banging it with Aurora in a hot tub, I was going to tell you that you have absolutely been on Tumblr too long, and you have crossed (laughs) too many tumble paths, and this is some weird super hulak bullshit, and I want none of it. 
But here we are seven issues in, and I'm like, yeah, both of them can get it with each other and should. Now, Nathan, your relationship with Alpha Flight goes back pretty far. Yep. This is a really dynamic switch for a character like Aurora, especially, you know, we've always seen Aurora kind of be like, oh, maybe I like bad boys. But this isn't Aurora being like, maybe I like bad boys. This is Aurora being like, you want to get with me? Clean your shit up. But I'm willing to put in the work. And he's like, I'm not. I have to be perfect before we can start dating. And like, that's such an Aurora thing. <laughs> I have to be perfect for you before we bang. So my question, how do you see this in terms of Aurora's now, what is it? Aurora's been around for 40 plus years. Yep. What do you see for her in this role with Dokken, this Wolverine stand-in? So uh, to me, it, it harkens back. It's kind of actually exciting to me because it reminds me a little of when, so after Northstar and Aurora came back from Asgard in Alpha Flight 80, something and I don't remember because I didn't get up. Aurora adopted like a new personality. Like she had been after the events of Alpha Flight 50 she'd spent a while in a convent and she was more or less healed or on the way to healing and she was using, she wanted to use her powers instead of as a superhero she wanted to use her powers as a healer so instead of being on the Alpha Flight she was on uh, the support branch of Alpha Flight. So like this and she had the really crazy outer girl. <laughs> uh, this really strikes me as that same healing version of Aurora so it really reads to me in that same way and it's really exciting to see Aurora getting treated as a person who's healing through her traumas and not defined by her trauma. I love that read on it. Jonah, does anything about the way Dokken and Aurora has come together feel natural for the little bit you know of either? Yes. So the only relationship I've ever really seen Aurora with is Sasquatch. But that relationship always kind of gave me some heebie-jeebies because that was when she was being written as this emotionally unstable woman who had plenty of mental issues as well as having a split personality. Uh, and it was just not cute. And not to really blame Satsquatch, but he really didn't help a lot in those situations. He kind of egged her on a lot. And I really didn't think that Aurora should have been with anybody, probably for a while until they figured out how to write her well and write her as not something problematic. But seeing her with Dokken, who the only other relationship I kind of know he has is him kind of torturing Bullseye from what Nico has told me and how he uh, maybe, you know, psychosexually uh, tormented Bullseye slash Lester for a while. It is probably the best thing Dokken did until Dokken became a legitimate good guy, while Dokken was temporarily Dark Wolverine, and Bullseye was temporarily Dark Hawkeye, and they were all temporarily <laughs> on the Dark Avengers together. Oh my god, Bendis loves adjectives. So, while they were all the Dark Squad, uh, they would be hanging out at the, you know, Dark Avengers headquarters, and Dokken would be like, hey Lester, what you doing? And Lester would be like, shut up Dokken. And Dokken would be like, hey, you want to go back to my bedroom? And <laughs> Lester would be like, no, stop it. And Dokken's like, I know you want to see it. I see you look at it. And, like, you could literally see Lester be like, he's not Daredevil. I don't want to see a penis that isn't Daredevils. I don't want to see a penis that isn't Daredevils. So, like, <laughs> it's such a really fun switch for these characters and i feel like we're really getting somewhere that has me excited about their futures of course 
it's not just all positive futures for these relationships. One of the major switches to come out of the pages of X Factor number seven that certainly threw me off for the better is I love that the Polaris mind wipe thing came due so quickly. I don't like, I mean, I love the technique. I didn't comment how much I love that technique of storytelling, but I don't love my characters being like tooled at. I don't love them being used as tools. So I frustrate that it happened, even though I love the device. So the fact that it was so quickly handled so well by such a powerful telepath, Rachel, that was one of the first things we said, Rachel's going to bust that out. How do you guys feel about that device and the way it played out? Okay, so I, I do, I agree with you. I love the device in general, but I think I don't like the choice to put that device on Lorna again, because like that just seems to be Lorna's whole history is being somehow mind wiped, mind controlled, mentally, man, mentally manipulated. It's just like, I'm like, thank God it's over and it's done with. So it's not like dragging on for like five years and she's not like Malice and the Marauders or anything, you know? So uh, it happened, but it's a fun device and I'm glad it's quickly done. I think they took this opportunity to focus more on the intrapersonal relationships between team members as well as respective romantic partners as opposed to more of what's going on with Siren. It felt more like the B plot, like the A plot, like this is an episode of golden girls is um dorothy going on a date and sophia chastising her and then in the b plot <laughs> rose and um blanche are solving a murder like that's literally what this is and the b plot like we only get a little scraps and pieces of the b plot like they're gonna come they're gonna walk in in police uniforms and dorothy's gonna be like well what's all this hullabaloo <laughs> You know. Wait, and we also know what Tommy, so it's kind of like Dr. Weston just hearing in the episode, too. So it's like, damn. Harry Weston just shows up and he's like, but I'm gay in this world. So um, <laughs> that's that's my really bad Dr. Harry Weston impression. And then there's just an empty nest reference somewhere in there. That's that's the that's Dr. Harry Weston. He's yeah. the empty nest lead. So we're with you. I don't mind that it took a little bit of a back seat because I know that in the next issue it's probably going to be a much bigger plot point. And I think the intermittent mix of trying to do almost this murder noir kind of style of solving like, well, how do these bodies die? And then you know this slice of life of look at all these people fucking and whipping their dicks around in this one household it's very queer i really do like that they're trying to give a big balance to it and trying to not um keep their readers bored and that is really what it takes to keep your readers on the edge of their seats now I'll admit, like we said, I don't necessarily think we have a lot of room to discuss that that last page. That last page was so fascinating and dramatic in such an unexpected way, right? Everyone's dead, dock in, go save the day. And I'm in, right? There's so many elements of like Wolverine and the Hellfire Club sewers to that, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I get that vibe here. So I'm excited about what's coming next, but I do feel that one of the central points of this issue was the notion of violence contrasted with all of this romance. So we have Dokken and Aurora finally coming together. We have Tommy and Prodigy finally definitively coming together. And I loved 
seeing that it was Tommy's eagerness, not just Prodigy's eagerness. So that really made it more equitable for our perspective as Prodigy's, it's Prodigy's book. So seeing Tommy initiate that he was sexually attracted to Prodigy is important. Otherwise, it could read like Prodigy has feelings for Tommy and not so much the other way around. So I really liked the balance there. But we have all of this love, all of this positivity. And then Dokken is literally impaled for several days. And Mm. not like, not actually. And I mean, maybe actually, but Jean-Paul is like, look, if I have to kill you to get you to stop talking, I'm going to kill you, (laughs) right? That is kind of seriously violent. And I I know it's not really violent, but it's kind of seriously violent. And then the end of the issue is everybody's dead for all of the love and all of the romance. This was kind of a classic horror story. All of this buildup and affection and excitement and power, and it all culminates in the inexplicable violence that plagues this team. And what I find really interesting is, I, I, I don't want to say it like weird, but like, how the fuck can you possibly kill Rachel? Like, how the fuck do you kill a telekinetic who can affect reality on a molecular level? How do you do that? But, I mean, clearly they did. So there's this sense of whatever's coming for them is immense. Now, I'm sure it's the Morrigan or that's going to play a factor, something like that. So without talking too much about this ending, right, where we're like, oh, what's going to happen? The violence of this issue before even the death toll went up unsettled the romance in a way that almost soured the experience on purpose. Not like, oh, they ruined this for me. Like, oh, they want us to feel unsafe. Did you guys feel that there was a horror current? Like this was the first act of a horror movie. Everybody's getting it on. Somebody gets hurt. They come back to the house. Now the killer's inside the house. Did you guys feel that horror trope? Or am I the only person that lives in like 17th century romantic horror novels? Oh God, no, absolutely. It was totally all there. Like you've got, you've got the teens fucking in the front part. You know, like you're like, okay, we've got to make sure that Jason doesn't like stab him through the bed. Like, yeah, no, it, it totally does. And you've got like some strong, lesbian undercurrents from Rachel and Lorna like mm, is there something going on like all of this like real like horror tropey stuff uh like especially when Dakin was impaled through I guess it wasn't the heart because he would have probably been dead then but like for days like oh my god Jojo what do you think about the violence of the issue to quote one of my favorite quotes currently somebody woke up and they chose violence that day it was I I can say this I was not expecting the very much horror-esque vibe. I did not see it coming in the slightest and when you look back on it you're like, "Oh, that really is just kind of like modern horror movies. You got a bunch of teens fucking, well not really teens. Uh, but you know, teens or or adults fucking yeah, in the no, front I mean, it, the first part. It's really hard to tell if they're like 18, 19, 20, 21. Like so I get like, you know, they're like young gay youth. I got it queer youth and then you got you got you know the 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 straight 20 somethings and they're <laughs> like uh, i shouldn't say straight because Dawkins not straight but you know the 20 something i don't think i don't think aurora's 20 something i think aurora's in her like mid 30s i think so i think so she's the same age as north star because well, i hope so <laughs> <laughs> she's five years younger <laughs> she's like five years younger than north star he came out too fast uh, <laughs> Now, here's here's the other thing about this issue that, like, 
All right. So this is, you know, trigger warning for anybody who's listening, something we've discussed, not just in our coverage of X Factor as a title, but something that we discussed with David Baldon himself is this book's fervent desire to confront ideas of abuse and normalize the discussion to end the cycle, right? That is something this book works to do tirelessly. We have seen more discussions of abusive relationships and perspectives on those abusive relationships than I think I've seen in almost every other X title combined for 10 years. So as a victim of abuse, I personally, I don't like that term though, as a victim of abuse, as a survivor of somebody's attempts to abuse me, I personally think this book is touching on some things that comics have long been afraid to touch on. And obviously I'm not talking about Alan Moore because the guy writes a book called You Goth Slug and it's about, you know, a crystallis fucking itself into life. So like when Alan Moore does something, it's like a thing, okay? But this is superhero comics at the big two. And for about 40 years in the industry, you could use the phrase superhero comics at the big two to mean something unoriginal and something unwilling to transform itself. So... I personally think that X Factor is doing something that no comic book is willing to do, and that is to help abuse victims find solace in superheroes because not all abuse is getting punched in the face. And that, for me, is an element of this title that sets it far apart. I've been lucky enough to cover every issue of X Factor because I make the schedule, and <laughs> it has been it's been really special to get to grow as a as a man with a book that I feel has helped a line grow. How do you guys feel about the real world realities that X Factor tries to bind into its superheroic narrative? Do you feel those enhance what the X Men are going through, or are you of the mindset that perhaps there's just not enough room for all of this real life in your mutes. I really, really appreciated that moment of this story because it was so well researched and so well spoken about. Like the, it was so informative for people who don't know the signs of abuse. And I hope that this book can help people to have the courage to speak up, to seek the help that they need, to recognize if they see something, and being able to have that confidence and understand what's going on. I I think every comic doesn't have to be this, you know, very real heavy topic, but your comics and your art should be reflective of what we see in the real world. Yes, these are fantasy stories, and I know a lot of people read more fantastical things to escape. When your medium and your art has such a platform to do so I think taking the opportunity to mimic real world mimic the real world talk about a real world situations I think it really helps ground your book and helps people connect to your characters to say these are kind of just like real people I could see David and Speed on the street you know holding hands not defining their relationship hands under each other's shirts whatever please don't do that in public Unless you're at, like, Pride, then sure. Um, But I I think it's really important for artists and people who do work in any kind of artistic media to be reflective of what they see and use their voice to speak up for those who can. Now, you know, Nathan, you've been reading the X-Men forever, right? And, you know, Jonah just so beautifully and succinctly put, 
exactly how I would hope a new fan would feel. You know, I know this is escapism for so many people, but it's it's safety and security for many others. You've gotten to watch the X-Men go from this very sort of a very special issue where somebody uses a bad word and then they learn Ooh. a lesson or, <laughs> you know, or somebody does something they should. Somebody tries a drugs bad and then they get told no skis. Right. So like we're all sort of used to, you know, Speedy from Teen Titans. Like that's yeah. where a lot of us go for these very special issues. But what I love about this issue is it's not treating it like a very special topic. This isn't a very special issue of X Factor. This is just a fucking issue of X Factor. This is what Leah and David bring every single month in terms of mental health awareness. How do you feel that's changed the X books over the last number of years? Is it something where you maybe wish we would go back to the very special issue? Or are you in favor of a more organic approach that maybe lessens the escapism a little bit? I I think I definitely like the more realistic approach um it, i mean it doesn't doesn't have to be like a very special issue to get the process. actually this works better like especially if you're looking at the uh, hot tub scene with aurora and the kin where they're going and where they talk about you know like wait why is jean fall like this right now like why isn't he just calling you and she's like you know they, they all went through this this huge thing in the age of x-men universe so like it's affecting all of them like haven't you noticed sisters like aren't they different we can't notice laura because she's stuck in the vault for like a year but um you know it, it it makes it more realistic to me and I, and I love that leah has that approach to it to make it less of a big deal because i think if you win when you make it a big deal yes you do get people to talk about it but you also make it seem more of something that is is like taboo and i think when you deal with it all the time you make it more realistic and more approachable and you let other people come to their own approach on it so like you're not saying oh my god speedy's doing drugs this is a big special issue you're saying like uh hey cool you know roy's over there like going on let's figure this out and it it, it becomes more of a organic topic and i think that's what the x-men need more than ever i think the x-men need to continue to evolve the fact that for so many years the X-Men hung out in the same position with no change is so frustrating. So I agree with both of you. I think this is the right time to continue transforming the X-Men and to bring them to the next level. I'm so glad you were able to segue to Age of X-Men. I personally feel as though there is not a very strong um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? I don't want to say agreement across the titles as to how much people remember Remember, but it does feel very let me pick if I care or not. And I appreciate that X Factor is like, no, we're the we're the psychological damage book. It happened if it's here. So I really do appreciate them taking that moment to kind of set things apart. I would also like to take a moment and thank David for docking in frat gear. <gasps> I think yeah. we, yes. uh, you know, getting to talk, <laughs> getting to say to him, like specifically, I always found it interesting that Dokken was drawn so skinny and lithe and you made him gigantic. Why? And he was like, because now he feels good about himself. So now he gets to be big. And like, as a bodybuilder, yes! So like, yes, you get it. So like, <laughs> seeing him dress like ultimate frat boy dude, like I mean, seriously, that was a next door guys oh. video. So like, oh, I, was, oh, I was going to say something very different, a little too vulgar for this podcast, maybe. <laughs> so I just absolutely love that they're giving him this room to grow. Did anybody else notice the sort of transformative kind of like, huh? 
yeah, whether it's Age of X-Men or just these characters evolving, is anybody else really starting to see this change in these characters over the past few months? Oh, absolutely. And I absolutely noticed the frat gear immediately because I was like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's something I definitely needed. Uh, I also kind of cackled a little bit when he was like, and why do you dress like a Sunday school teacher every day? <laughs> <laughs> It was like, yeah, she was one for a very long time. She was. (laughs) She literally was one. To tie this into a a different book, really fresh to a great uh, contributor in the X office, Vita, their work on the Marauders issue in the Ten of Swords crossover with Storm getting Stormbreaker. It was really, really interesting hearing them talk about the specific choices that they made with the art team to show uh, Storm growing and doing different things, like the outfit that Storm was wearing or Storm putting her hair up. It was these different attention to detail that I'm seeing being bled all over into the different X title books that I'm really appreciating of showing how these characters can grow through their outfits, through their attitudes, through their design, through these different choices that they're making for these characters. Hold on, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up like the one panel like appearance of Dazzler. (laughs) I am so mad at myself for not bringing that up. You're so right. (laughs) Like... I'm like, you know, like the whole scene where they're like trying to like track down like in a very CSI type of thing where like, what's going on with Siren? Um, I, I do have to say like, oh my God, like David's like redesign of that costume, living for it. But you know, as always, I wish my cameo queen wasn't quite the cameo queen and she had some. It's really hard for Dazzler. I mean, she's always recording an album or having a Thor hammer in her car. Well, so... she needs to have that Thor hammer in the car because it's how where's her career i don't know <laughs> a lady do carry a mjolnir at night i mean it isn't it is a known no. fact <laughs> Nico here one last time, and this next segment sees Arturo, Blake, and Drew talk about what must be the strangest X-Men ongoing in some number of years, Hellions. They talk about what makes it so different and special. Guys, as always, we love making this show for you. If you like what you hear, give us a subscribe, a review, a follow, however you follow podcasts. If you like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So go check out our YouTube where you can find some more amazing videos covering a lot of the same topics and a whole lot more. And if you want to help keep the lights on and have input in how the show is going to go, check out our Patreon, all of which can be found over on our Twitter at X's for Podcast. And welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm your host, Arturo, and you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Hi, my name's uh, Blake. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BTMorgan85. Hey, I'm Drew. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drewcifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R. And today we are looking at Hellions number nine by writer Zeb Wells with beautiful art by Steven Segovia, colors by David Curiel, uh, lettered by VCs Ariana Mayer, and designed by Tom Muller. The Hellions have returned to Krakoa after a successful mission to recover Orphan Maker's armor from Cameron Hodge and his robot army of Smileys. While the Hellions were able to help the Smileys turn against Hodge and circumvent their anti-mutant program, Krakoa's AI policy 
policy demanded that Psylocke destroy the AI, wiping out all smiley tech. Although perhaps not for good if Nanny has anything to say about it. Meanwhile, Ray Crow and Psylocke have grown, grown closer than ever. Who knows, perhaps this whole rehabilitation thing is actually working. This was a trip of an issue. It starts off with a very civilized meeting between Mr. Sinister and Jason Wingard, the Hellfire Club's resident dickhead mastermind. What did you guys think of, uh, of how this opened up? I did not expect it. Definitely. Uh, it, it took me off guard and I, it really set the tone for, for what's about to happen. Like these, these first couple pages, you know, you have a, a member of the high council being kidnapped. And as, as far as I can remember, the last time we had something sort of like this go down was when uh, Xavier was assassinated early on in when Docs was rolling uh, yep. in X-Force. And so to have another moment like that, especially because you don't until, later like this opening scene you don't really know if he's dead or, or knocked out i mean he's got blood coming out of his mouth and he's, he's crawling to the bathroom of all places because <laughs> he's got the he's got a rattlesnake inside of him is what he says it feels like you already know it's going to be crazy because of of the last issue which the end of that was really intense and and then to start this way is like, okay, you know what? I'm in for another Zeb roller coaster and I'm going to, I'm going to pull my, I'm going to pull the bar down over my shoulders and, and, and get ready to take this ride. And, and it was, it was a good ride. It was a fun read. Yeah. I agree with everything you said. One of the things that I think is all the cake jokes again, like we've gotten them for a couple issues now and I think they never really get old. And then another thing I want to add is Mastermind is wearing his costume from like the sixties, like his first appearance. I, I thought that was kind of weird. And, uh, and strange to give him like a pump of water costume. <laughs> I loved Sinister reading for him, reading him for wearing that uh, potato sack you wear. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was, that was an interesting choice. I agree. But I mean, it definitely is, you know, an iconic look. I mean, for being a potato sack, you know, when you see, you know, this costume who, who you're dealing with. Um, the thing that I love so much about the, the twist in this is the way that they showed Mastermind's power in action. When it comes to like telepathy and, you know, I, I really dig when they do something like this where it's like, they mess with your perception as the reader and, and you're not even sure what's real and what's not. And I think that that's just more interesting to me than when you see a telepath do kind of like a physical assault, you know what I mean? Like whether it's like a psi blast or, or you just, you know, even if you take over somebody's body or whatever, I mean, that's cool. That's fine. But this to me is so much more interesting when, when it's like the whole world turns upside down because you're under this guy's goal. Well, yeah. And even, I know this happens like a lot, Ed, but if you look at the background story, too it's very like mysterious with what's what's happening like there's not like you don't really see a lot with is happening in the background um yeah yeah the the, the juxtaposition of that scene where it's you're in you're in the limo and then you're in the boat and then you're in the plane awesome like that was such a, a really good visual flex of like villainy it mess it messed with me as a reader like it, it didn't take me out of the story or anything but it, it was a really good shock um uh you know those those page that page turn to that was really cool and also we were talking about the the look of a uh, mastermind and it going back to that opening scene when you turn the page to the the title page um he's got this the the, the page that shows you like you know the crew who worked on it and, and all the text and everything he's got this terrifying like menacing grin in the middle 
of those two pages in black and white. And so you get this opening scene and then and then you you go to the credits page and, and he just has this terrifying kind of look about it. And you're just like, oh, shit, man. And then you go, you turn the page again and you're you're with the Hellions, um, you know, them like in the weight room and training. Uh, there's a lot of like really cool little subtle moments like that. This book is really good at, at uh, keeping you on your toes. And and Zeb Wells is a really great writer in that like they really do think about uh, panel progression, page turns, when to reveal things like this is this and Marauders try really hard to like steal my heart of best X book out. And I'm pretty sure it's this one. Like I'm really certain it's this one. I'm right there with you. I mean, I I am so loyal to Marauders and I get excited every time there's a new Marauders and I'm always satisfied with Marauders. Marauders is great, like top notch, but man, Hellions kind of has stolen the show for me because I, it's just so unexpected and I care about these fuckers so much at this point you know like when when the when the lineup was was announced you know, over a year ago now it was kind of like what you know i mean and, and everybody has said it like this is just you know to call these guys b-list is is an overest right i mean this is some d-list x-men crew and it's just incredible what what Zebels has done with it and and seeing him pull up mastermind i tell yes give it to me. like i want as many old obscure you know characters that nobody's doing anything with give them to Zebels wells and, and he can make something out of for sure stepping out of the issue real quick and going into the real world you know we've just gone through this whole x-men vote where fans were invited to go online and vote for the last x-men to join this new team the reign of x era and you know there's a bunch of cool characters that were that were on the ballot and you know there can only be one of them that makes it into the x-men but my god i hope zub wells scoops up like two or three of them and and puts them in his book because they'd be in, in no better hand and like the coolest thing about this book is the obscure characters that that he's dug up and if you didn't know them before that's fine you can just kind of jump in like you don't need to know the publication history of north of, of nanny and orphan me but if you have that context then it is kind of interesting to to see where where they're going although i really am not sure what's going on with orphan maker like he's definitely growing up a little bit you know we definitely had like this uh either you know pre-teen i don't have kids so i I'm not sure exactly when things go off the rails, but I'd say it's probably preteen. You know, yeah, preteens uh, usually when you when you make the armor and fit it to your children. Typically, I don't have kids either. I'm just guessing, <laughs> right? And the, and the armor starts chafing a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely that. You know, we we see him kind of uh, rebelling, and I mean, not to spoil anything, but it looks like Nanny is maybe okay with that because she's got other uh, other things preoccupying. Her, her attention yeah she's definitely distracted um that so earlier when when you mentioned that like when this book was first announced and you were like eh, i will admit how wrong i was like i was telling everybody i was like this book's gonna be dumb i don't know who these people are i'm mad that psylocke's in here like she should be in a better book like i was just like i had no faith in this book and i i'm so glad to be wrong like i said complete 180 from thinking that this was not going to be something that i'd be interested in to now it's my most sought after look forward to will buy expensive variants for X book, but I will also buy expensive variants for all the other books. Cause I'm, I'm, I have no control over myself when I see like <laughs> pretty covers. I'm just like, I gotta have them all. Um, but that going back to orphan maker and, uh, and nanny, I really, really, really dug that scene 
where they're uh when she's making the new armor and like how horrifying it would be to wake up like that and you're like i'm too big for this like that's all over his body like sealed shut and he's you know, you think about it like, you know, before they brought him back, you know, like he'd been in this suit for a while. There's muscle atrophy. His body's going to be different. And then they bring back this fresh specimen and the suit doesn't fit right. And he's just he's in this pain and he's like, help me. And I was like, oh, my God, that's terrifying. Like, yeah, no, it's a I really mean, intense scene. Yeah. To be clear, the armor is like welded and and screwed onto him. I mean, it's it's not it's not a just like a suit, you know, it's 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 like encasing it's like a show and uh yeah i i'm right there with you i it made me so uncomfortable you know seeing him go through that and you know i think it's kind of cool that we have a mystery around what exactly his power is and what the suit does to mitigate that and what's like the potential threat like if, if he gets out of the suit i think it's i think it's good that those are still questions you know um that that might be doing more service for the narrative than than if we just had that all all spelled out really clear there's just something so intrinsically creepy about these two that you can't i mean you can rehabilitate them and you can recontextualize them for sure but it's important i think not to to lose that you know and part of nanny's thing part of nanny's thing has always been you know oh to, to take a line from wandavision for the children right <laughs> like, nanny is very about that and it's interesting to see it. it looks like she picked up a new charge uh on their latest mission when they announced it last year i really didn't know any of the characters except for like Psylocke, Wild Child, and Havoc. Um, and I was just kind of like mad about it and just like kind of not excited for it. But like I'm giving all the first six issues a try. So I was like, I'll try it. I don't really have any faith in it. And it has become one of my favorite, definitely top three uh, favorite books of like the whole series so far. And Nanny and Orphan Maker have probably become my favorite characters in the book. Um, just because like their personalities, even though you don't know them, they are pretty like you don't need to know them because they're so clear cut, right? Like Nanny is a nanny, right? She is kind of like her namesake. And then Orphan Maker is like her parent to go along with that. He is kind of like the child. So that like they're kind of like a, a package deal with that. Like just this whole interesting uh, concept now that Nanny now has another kid to deal with and like Orphan Maker is not her main priority. Um, it's like an interesting plot point. Um, and then another funny thing is that this, this one panel, she's like when she's like standing there about to get dressed, it shows her like armor in the background. And I was like dying how her lips are like painted on her armor. <laughs> I was so happy to see that. I was so happy to see that because when she... You know, it, it, when they when she was resurrected and they said, you know, wild child is more wild child and nanny is more nanny. I missed that she didn't have her lips. I was like, damn, they like gave her like a, you know, more menacing look. And and I was I was very happy to see that she's got different outfits for different occasions now because those lips are super creepy and interesting and funny. And yeah. Do you guys think that we will ever get tired of inserting cute, weird baby alien robot? things now because of mr grogu i just i guess this trend ever gonna end like i'm 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 for it i I haven't been burned out yet it's but it just like 
I, I kind of I thought of that when uh, in the last issue when we got the reveal of, of the the little baby yes. AI robot that she's hiding. I, I think that's really interesting. We saw this AI, this smiley AI, come to life and you know and become become self aware or whatever and break free of Cameron Hodge. Cameron Hodge is always a dick. The, the little robots were were friends with with Havoc for a hot minute, it, and it seemed like they were benign. And but hey, Krakoa's got this uh, strict AI policy, and it's I think one thing to murder robots. It's another thing to murder a robot that looks like a baby, that looks <laughs> cute and has big eyes and and squeaks. So I think that's really that's an interesting thing that, that we're going to see. You know, I, I can't engage with the AI sub without my mind instantly thinking and wondering about what the hell happened to Danger. The Danger Room became sentient, took on form, and I guess I was in Whedon's run. And then later we saw her in the newer X Factor back then, when they were like working with Serval Industries. And I don't know. I don't know where Danger is on the map right now. I, I'm not sure where was the last time we saw her or what what her status is but yeah i mean the x-men are no stranger to to ai um so it's interesting that that's a defining thing now in the dawn of x or, or further now in the reign of x uh that they're making very clear like no precogs and no ai and they're being weird about clones too it what's crazy is is i i mentioned this when on i posted about the last issue of hellions on twitter and um and i was i was it's kind of like they're breaking my heart with havoc. Like I don't, he, they're just piling emotional, like just weighing his shoulders down with, with, with like battle scars and, and trauma. And it's, it, I was really glad that this issue, they kind of gave him a break, even though they didn't because the whole team gets kind of put through the ringer. But I mean, the whole deal with Madeline and he's already upset about the clone situation, about how they they're saying, like, you know, the clones don't deserve to get um, to get brought back to life because uh, they're they're not, you know, real. You know, he has the whole relationship with Madeline in the past, which they kind of brought up earlier in the series. And then he, like, makes friends with all these robots and then they all just die in front of him. And he's like he, like, taught him how to be friends with mutants and he, like, found an ally. And then, you know, they they. um uh, Psylocke just murders them all because of this new rule. But uh, we were set up for that because, like, I'm thinking back to House of X and Powers of Ten, and that was such a huge part of that was, you know, they, they're they all, uh, you know, trying to stop Nimrod and the AI is the big fear. So I, I can see, like, carrying that over. But there's a lot of, like, there's some weird stuff on Krakoa and it's not, it, we're starting to see that it's not the happy go lucky tiki bar 24 hour a day party. Now, like Xavier's got this like alternate like agenda and he's keeping big secrets. And, and yeah, the fact that they don't want any precogs, like why you're hiding, you're blatantly hiding something huge. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, I think it's a conscious decision that, that, uh, that Alex is kind of in the front row, you know, of the, this and and he's seen kind of the the, the cracks in the Corcoan you know way of being or whatever firsthand he's seeing like this isn't just exactly what you said this you know mutant paradise on a postcard uh there's there's some dirty grimy shit that's going down and yeah and i think madeline is is i mean the fact that zeb wells opened this series right out of the gate and said let me tackle madeline Pryor was such a ballsy move like i i was just like what like we we can resurrect any mutant 
why are we going to even open a can of worms like the clones, right? Like I was kind of like against the clones too. Now I'm all for it. I want a whole little clone team. I want Madeline. <laughs> I want Joseph. I want a uh, kid strife, please. Like I'm all for it. Those are, they're all people, you know? So like, I think it's a really cool thread. I think it's a, it's an interesting thing about this era. And, and I, and I love that they're playing. I love that they're not shying away from right Cause you could, you could just easily turn this book into, you know, uh, a gritty, you know, black ops team that does, you know, and it is that, but it's a lot more interesting than that, you know, and, and it, and it has great comedic beats. I mean, we can't, like, I can't stop raving about that. Like Zebwells has such good comedic timing. And, and this was just another great example of it. When they find out that, <laughs> that Sinister has been kidnapped, <laughs> they all just lose it. Like, it's so great, you know, uh, and, and they go, Oh, one of, one of your own. She said it like we were going to start crying. <laughs> even empath who's such a dick is just right there with them laughing along and yeah it's just it's it, this book is a delightful surprise like do you think they're trying to uh elicit like a relationship between psylocke and and gray crow in the, the little intro blurb on the title page mentions like you know the the french they kind of talk about the friendship you think about the last issue where she like tells him he doesn't always have to be the bad guy and they have this like kind of touching touching moment in the last issue but if you look at the the big splash page which kind of made me laugh in this issue there's there's this big usually when you get like a double page splash it's like the team going in for battle and this like big battle scene and this one like when you get this double page splash it's just everybody falling out of the sky and it's hopeless and it's you don't usually get like a splash page like that it was kind of different but right after that he and betsy are like reaching out for each other like so this this last moment they think they're about to die you know they don't know that it's all a trick yet and they're the last thing they're gonna do you know their last breathable moment is to reach out to each other and i was like i was like that's not that's not just platonic like they're i think these guys are gonna these guys are gonna get down and i'm so into that like i i think that would be so like we talked about nanny and orphan maker and kind of like these these rejects but like let's talk about the psylocke of it all right like you know we've talked on the pod before about you know psylocke and betsy being separated and 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 just how much work has gone into creating betsy as captain britain and and telling her own story now and separating the Quanon or Hanan and uh, and defining Psylocke as a new character and man they're doing such a great job of like I I wrestle now with the with with wondering like did I used to love Psylocke or did I really love Hanan <laughs> you know like like she which which part of Betsy was it that I really love you know I love that they're doing so much good character development here and Grey Crow I mean talk about like an irredeemable bad guy I mean the only exposure I had to him as a kid growing up was uh or, or my first time you know engaging with the character was the mutant master like that even even in a in a world of superheroes and villains there was always something about the mutant massacre that was so beyond right that was just so like purely evil and uh just seeing one of the one of the, the big perpetrators of that on on page now doing all this work to to redeem himself is just so cool you know and and in the in the this Krokoan era it's like this is when some of these characters that have never really known peace you know they, they've never known happiness like now they have an opportunity to to find that and uh yeah it's it's just really cool i i'm shocked by how much i like great 
he's grown on me a lot because I'm just not familiar with him, but this book totally made him really, really, really cool. And this book has great art. Like, and he just looks cool all the time. Yeah. Great art. You know, I I, I mean, I think there's some artists in this era that everybody loves and talks about. And I really think Segovia deserves uh, a little more love because he does not disappoint. I mean, every issue he turns it out and, and he's made everybody, I don't know that he's given everybody like their own flair and it's 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 definitely a distinct style it's it's great that one panel with Quanin when she's like everyone suit up there's been an incident oh she looks good great there <laughs> kind of got a little like a wild child moment here and he's before we saw him as being like Psylocke was kind of his um like master kind of thing and he was <laughs> like the uh, like the animal and now like I kind of like when I was reading it, I have it written down that he's very much like a like a stereotype of a pit bull where he's mm-hmm. like you know I mean he's still animal like but he's he's kind of fighting he's he's fighting back and he's like like no fuck off you know like uh with with Greg that this part with Greg Crow here um you know so he's getting like a little bit more uh like ownership over himself he's not like as cra- he is still crazy but he's not he has more control over himself yeah it feels like he's kind of gone through a little you know puberty too with the I, maybe that's what Araco resurrections are about is like it makes them kind of mature a little because it feels like he and Orphan Maker are kind of going through the same you know uh, growing up a little bit. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good point. Also, I think Wild Child changed a little bit too when the kind of Dom sub relationship between him and Quanon initiated. If she stepped on my neck, I'd have a better attitude as well. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed some changes in him after that scene where she kind of puts him in the place in the field. And we also, he was, it kind of looked to me when, when he kind of lashes out um, in, in this issue, it, it lo- almost looked like he was watching Psylocke work out. Like, cause they were and and then he, he gets like all grumpy and freaks out. And Grey Crow even makes a reference and he's like, oh, he still haven't found a chick to take that aggression out on. And I was like, whoa, like that was kind of a weird scene. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I was just like pervy Blake reading it and looking too into it or if it was like intentional. But that, that, that also made me like it was kind of humorous and weird. And, and I was just like, man, this this for a team that they all hated each other and was a complete and total clusterfuck and no one could work right together to what were eight issues in. And, and that dynamic has totally changed. and. They still may not all the way like each other, but their every issue progresses so wonderfully and they work better and better as a team. And this is becoming like one of the best X team books. And yep. it's like, and, and that's combating against Hickman's X-Men. Zeb Wells is laying it down. That's huge. Yeah. I, I love that they were working out like that. That is such a classic X-Men thing. Like not just, I mean, it, it, more classic would have been like they were in a danger room session type of thing but like how many times would you see the x-men literally just working out lifting weights together like back to the original five even so seeing this team do that because it's one thing to like go on missions together it's another thing to just like choose to hang out with each other and 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 spend their downtime in the gym like i thought that was really interesting um yeah yeah this this book is is shocking like how much they're growing together it's also nice to see elements from like the pre-hickman era um that's like still um like coming into this like to this era so like we don't really have that school aspect anymore of like you know like but we we're still getting them like training you know that aspect of um like what they were doing before do you guys know what gray crow's mutant ability is 
No, not really. Uh, no. Yeah, I'm, I guess, I, no, because I'm not really clear on it either. I mean, he seems to like be able to make guns out of his the metal part of his body, like the cyborgy kind of part of his body. I know he can like kind of like pull a gun out of his boob, basically, but that doesn't really seem like a natural mutation. It feels more like a like bells and whistles he picked up along the way. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he's again another another character here where their power set is not. 100% clear um, but it doesn't really bother me I just kind of roll with it yeah he's, so he's got a healing factor um, uh, t- tell him technomorphic powers yeah. that allow him to control and manipulate uh, mechanics so he's like forge forge-esque and master marksmanship control and manipulate mechanical constructs and 12 out of 10 studliness yes yeah he's gotten so hot I love his hair too his little, uh, his little like messy ponytail. So, um, speaking of control, I thought it was really interesting to see Sage get her shit fucked up in this. Not physically, not not literally, you know, but the fact that Mastermind was able to outsmart Sage was was that's a flex you know what i mean that's a flex that's like that's when you start getting like just how powerful mastermind may be you know and i know we kind of jumped into the mastermind of it all pretty early on but i kind of want to go back to that because like one thing that i think is really cool about that is going back to like dark phoenix right like he was such an integral part of of that whole story arc and you know we look back and it's you know basically mastermind was like a rapist you know i mean it's wasn't explicit on the page but it certainly was implied that he made gene fall in love with him and she thought he was this big sexy you know mustache daddy um yeah i mean it just mastermind is one of those guys that it like have you guys seen jessica jones the netflix Mm -hmm. right he's 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 yeah it's like that kind of menacing where it's not a, a physically threatening thing it doesn't look impressive but it is absolutely terrifying if he sinks his hooks into you you're fucked and uh and you can be a powerful telepathic ninja and it doesn't matter he can still you know get get past your defenses so yeah i mean i think that's i think that's interesting i think there's something to be said also for a villain that is just clearly irredeemable right because like i don't know if this ends with mastermind in the hole or or like where he goes from here or does he end up joining the hellion maybe who knows like that that could be kind of cool actually but he's clearly not on board with the krakoan agenda he's not turning over a new leaf and you know and, and and hanging out in the hammock and enjoying life on Krakoa he's still up to his fuckery and I think that I think that's an interesting thing too I think you know I think it's good that some villains we're seeing are being rehabbed and and it's and it's genuine but I think that there's some comfort in knowing like some guys are just going to be a dick no matter no matter what yeah I, I like that a lot because we 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 get weird we haven't had like a really intense villain yet in the grand scheme of things it's all the, it, it, it's a lot of like just humans in general like they're kind of playing playing that trope again where it's you know the humans versus the mutants but you know that we used to have a whole lot of mutant bad guys and now we don't now there's this united front and everybody's working together even omega red which we've seen uh there's there's this mystery of omega red in, in the other you know series that are out right now and wolverine and stuff where you know he's he appeared to be you know against this krakoan united front idea 
and and playing against his own or playing uh for his own like agenda and now we're seeing that like that may be a manipulation too like he he's not the bad guy we maybe thought he was but i really like this tension on Krakoa that there are still bad guys like this utopia isn't going to be a utopia forever it can't be utopias don't exist they can't there's just people are people are too flawed whether you have an x gene or not and i really like the seeds being sprinkled that are going to just grow into really big trees of drama and i'm looking forward to that so much uh cuz it's just like i said we we need i think we need more like bigger villains i think that's what the this x relaunch is is kind of needing like even in in um house of x and powers of 10 we had nimrod and the ai and but we just haven't had that kind of top tier villain in these x books yet um and, and they're still fun and and you know we still get good action and there's still bad guys to fight but you know there there's to, to, there's no mastermind there's no like there's no big giant villain scary how are we gonna defeat this and unite all our forces to stop this evil like we haven't really got that yet and well I, I mean, that was, I that was X wave, of Swords. Yeah, I'm like waving frantically at X of Swords. That's what that was all mm-hmm. like. And that's that I think is one of the best things about X of Swords or Ten of Swords was that they gave us all of this whole new cast of not bad guys, but, you know, antagonists, we'll say. And we didn't know them from Adam. And because of some great character design and some good writing, uh, we got a taste for all of these different, you know, personalities and even factions within, you know, within the whole Araco side of the equation. I mean, and it was a big, you know, world-threatening threat. I think that 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 did a really good job of, of taking the, the new status quo and setting up a big bad that wasn't from the past. You know, like doing something fresh and new. Yeah. I mean, you know, from the past is probably the wrong choice of words because they were like ancient, you know, uh, family of, of, of apocalypse. But, but to us, they were new, you know? And and I just think that the the definition of like a, a bad guy in this era has kind of changed a little bit. It isn't your traditional bad guy like we were used to seeing. It is kind of become like a like a socio political kind of a you know villain or like a you know like the humans. You know, it's 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 become about like politics of Krakow and stuff like that, not just about being a bad guy and oh you know punch punch fight fight right yeah it's a it's a lot more insidious than that right there there is like Mm -hmm. the enemy is within you know like sometimes like yeah and it's you have to you have to do stuff like that when when you've literally made all your enemies kind of your quote-unquote friends yeah yeah and i and i think like you know like we have like you know blake mentioned nimrod like we have the threat of of you know the sentinels and uh and Orcus, like they're still out there. We've got uh, the those the sentient plants that were. Remember, they they were like uh, like if sentinels were plant life instead. Oh, of from X Force, yeah. Right, like we we've got these we've got threats in the water. Uh, I'm glad that nobody is rushing to the finish line to like you know what I mean. Like we we've got we know Sinister is not trustworthy even even in this whole Krakoan era or whatever nobody trusts Sinister everybody's kind of aware of that even his own team you know does it does it nobody fucks with Sinister because they they know what they're dealing with I loved so much when when uh when Mastermind is kind of revealing to him to to them all haha you guys are fucked you know how 
long have I been in your heads and all that? And then uh, Rayco says, fuck this. And Haddock says, for real. And then Mastermind goes, yes, fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> and then blows him out the... Like, <laughs> it was so good. I just... Oh, I'm a sucker for for villain monologuing. Yeah, and that got me too, man. Like I really thought he took out that whole team. Like it yet again, like when I talked earlier about how amazing Zeb Wells is and how he controls the narrative through the the structure of the panel layout and the page turns. Like I thought that team was dead. I was like, "Well, they're all going to get brought back again," which is you know, like, and they just did, like a lot of them did just die and got brought back again. Now they're going to have to do this whole deal. Cause I was like, all their heads are splattered all over the pavement. Like that, that's it. Like he, he got them, he won. And then and, you turn the page and it's like, Oh, and that's, that's, fake another, too. that's another cool thing about this era is, you know, and, and it's one of the big, uh, one of the, one of the complaints, I guess that some people have is, Oh, well, you know, because now that they, they can be resurrected, like now death doesn't matter. And like people, some people see that as a, flaw and i think it's brilliant because it it changes the stakes right it doesn't remove them it doesn't lower them it just changes the the game and when you see somebody's gonna die you buy it now because you know that they that i mean what was it last issue that that we saw the whole team you know that sinister killed everybody or the issue before when they were getting back from morocco like that can happen at any point right like everybody is is expendable to an extent and it's just, it's interesting narratively what they can do with that and, and and how they can kind of take your expectations and then shift them and they did that you know masterfully here and you fell for it. hook line and sink you know that's that's awesome that's like a, that's a win and then what did you guys think of the big reveal at the end of who's who's really pulling the strings behind this caper? I mean, I saw the shoes, and then with like the, the okay. So the one thing about like the, the the posters that they showed at the beginning, I saw the shoes, and I was like, "Oh, it's arcade." You know what I mean? Like the the Reign of X like promo poster, whatever came out, and it has all the different characters. Um, right. I figured it was arcade when you see the shoes, you know. And I was like, I mean, at that point, you're already like, you know who it is. So I love that though. I love I love that about the yeah. I I, I feel you on that. When I saw him, I, it just like this like little piece fell fell into place in my head where it's like, oh cool, we got one of the you know one one of the one of the figures from the new promo is now in the book. Yeah. As opposed to where it, where if they didn't put out that promo picture, I'd be like, oh, you know. The shoes were so ridiculous. I like that they kind of stayed true to Arcade's look, but there's something updated about him where he there's something about him that just kind of feels a little, I don't know, like Elon Musky or like, you know <laughs> what I mean? There's like something about him. <laughs> Yeah, he definitely he definitely just looks like skeevy Silicon Valley, you know, hedge fund something, you know, just like yeah. a tech entrepreneur part of his uh, of his his team. Not really a team, just the two of them. Like I said earlier, I'm I'm really uh, intrigued by the stress that this writer and 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 book are, is puts on Havoc. I think that's going to be uh, a big a big part of what's to come. He's starting to see the cracks in the foundation of the Utopia, and he's one of the few people seeing that of the big name mutants. Scott and Gene maybe a little bit too, since you know they're, we're making this new X team and stuff. But I think that's that's going to be a, a big deal that will probably echo throughout the other books. I, I hope you know, like it, it is a cohesive world. 
we're going to get some cool murder world stuff. We're going to get some big action. The team is going to have to come together. I like they're in a situation right now where not just one of them can, can save the day. And I think sinister is going to end up eating crow too, because the master manipulator is needing saving and you know, his, his superiority complex is he's going to be faced with that because he is, he is trapped and he can't get out. And this team that he likes to pretend are just, you know, pawns in his chess game and unimportant and he can grow new ones and, and find new team members. Like they're a lot more important than he thinks they are. And they're going to be the ones to bring him out of this mess, you know, assuming. And so I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that. I really like the drama in the X books. I like the soap opera aspect. Um, and I say that loosely because they're not just soap operas. Like this is great writing going on right now as we move into reign of X. And, uh, but I just like, I really like that we get a lot of high drama pieces along with the high action. Uh, and I think that's what makes these X books special. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the drama. I'm, I'm an X, I'm an X drama King. I'll yeah. I, if you're writing the X-Men and you're not treating it like a soap opera, you're totally missing the point. Right. And I feel like that's what so many of these writers are doing so right right now. And the way that the whole line is kind of like weaving together and, you know, people, everyone's doing their own thing, but it's like they're, they're working towards similar purposes is just so damn cool. And they've, and they're taking advantage of the fact that now we've got a cast of literally hundreds of mutants. We can do anything with it. Yeah. So you're going to get messy relationships. You're going to get, you know, tensions and factions. And uh, yeah, I, I want to see what, what happens next. I want to see what happens with Mastermind. I want to see if, you know, betraying one of the quiet council members and, and selling him out to Arcade, if that's enough to get his ass thrown in the hole. Are we going to get, you know, a new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants growing down there in the bowels of Krakoa? Oh man, that's huge. That would be crazy. 